suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things, an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today's discussion will focus on the 27 Club, Terry Bellita, the torture of the talented, We're actually going to talk about five musical geniuses that are never going to be members of the 27 Club. This is part one of what will be an episodic adventure discussing musical but tortured geniuses. And the the 27 Club is a very, very exclusive club where dying to become a member is not optional. Membership depends on it. And 27 Club membership is a very exclusive, highly restricted, and admission is by recognition by the people only. One doesn't petition to gain entry for membership. There is no admission committee. One is admitted to the 27 Club by popular acclaim, or one does not gain entry at all. And 27 club membership in no way resembles admission to the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown or the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. There is none of this first ballot, second ballot nonsense. There's no old-timers review committee to try to make sure there's admission to the club for old guys that just didn't get in. No, there is none of that. One is either in or one is not in the 27 club. Members are in no, members are not in any position to admeal, ad, appeal admission if they had been denied membership in the first place. They have no standing. They're not standing at all. All decisions on entry to the 27 Club are final. There's no debate. Admissions decisions are immediate and are not subject to appeal. No recounts are necessary, and, and actually none are even done. And unlike the Hotel California, a 27 club member has no options. One cannot check out and one can never leave. Entry to the club, by the way, is heavily biased. 27 club membership has no egalitarian instinct or requirement whatsoever. You must be spectacularly talented spectacularly famous, and spectacularly dead at age 27. Not 26, not 28, not almost 27. No, you have to be age 27. And the 27 club is massively discriminatory by its very nature as it should and as it need be. One needs to be good enough for entry or not. 
There, there's going to be no affirmative action mandate. There's going to be no need for DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion officers to make a judgment on who gets into the club. The EEOC can't get involved, can't force membership for diversity reasons. There are no participation ribbons awarded for good efforts. On the other hand, once admitted to the 27 Club, there are are no dues to be paid. All members have already paid the ultimate price for membership. Members are in no position to pay anything further. They have given their all, and no more can, should, or will be asked of them. And before we discuss members or mention members who are in the 27 Club, let's take a brief peek at several superstars who won't ever become 27 Club members despite seemingly Uh, possessing the requisite world-class talent required of members and whom definitely lived lives, as the Eagles would say, in the fast lane. But they didn't travel at mega-death speeds most associated with an existence spent drag racing on, say, the Autobahn of life. Life's equivalent of seeing, you know, no need for seat belts or airbags. And when things go bad, they go very bad. But these lunatic 27 club genius wannabes failed to crash and burn fast enough. Let's take who's mad drummer Keith Moon, an absolute loon. Now there, I mean, this was a crazy a mother as you'll ever hope to see. As talented a drummer as there ever was. And he was famous for his unique, passionate, wild man commitment to an you know, an all-hands-on-deck style of chaos on the skins, crashing cymbals and tom-tom thrashings. He could bring the noise. And Moon's barbarian drum style implanted the DNA, which would genetically define Pete Townsend and the Who forever with Roger Daltrey. It was a, he was a take-no-prisoners drummer. And on stage, he was a dark whirlwind of carnage who often destroyed his drum kit before leaving the stage. Either that or, or Moon would pass out and fall off his stool, victimized and traumatized from the adverse effects of the excessive intake of brandy, champagne, and various drugs, or all three in a potentially lethal you know, cocktail combination on especially toxic nights. And from his drum kit on stage to to a hospital gurney was only a short trip by ambulance for the deteriorating soul of the man known as Moon the Loon. Rolling Rolling Stone magazine later would declare that Keith Moon was the second best 
rock drummer of all time. Only behind a man we'll discuss, John Bottom of Led Zeppelin. Off stage, Keith Moon certainly gave gave it his all as well when trying to do himself in. And when when he was not occupied with, say, blowing up hotel toilets with cherry bombs or sticks of dynamite, destroying hotel rooms or tossing TVs through the hotel suite windows into pools below. Keith Moon's psychic deterioration and self-destructive behavior was legion. Toxic consumption of alcohol while, while feeding a ferocious drug addiction gave every, every indication that things would not end well for Keith Moon. And alas, they did not. They did not. Keith Moon died of a drug overdose, but he was age 32, thus disqualifying himself from 27 club membership. And since we started with an insane and an insanely talented rock drummer in Keith Moon, let's treat another John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, admired for his speed, his power, his fast, you know, single-footed kick, drumming, his mind-boggling, mind-altering, distinctive sound, and the feel for the groove. Bonham is regarded as one of the greatest, most influential rock drummers in rock and roll history. And in fact, Rolling Stone magazine, Stylus, um, the BBC, uh, Rhythm magazine, they all would proclaim Bonham as the greatest uh, rock drummer that ever lived by a long shot. He was a groover with incredible swagger. No doubt about it. So Bonham's superlative talent was world-class. Top of the world. He was the, the top of the game. It was never in doubt. It was, his talent was always recognized. But, but while Bonham was in total control of his kit, Bonham was far less in control of himself. Pure, un, just pure unadulterated craziness with more than a hint of violence that loomed over all of Led Zeppelin as they remained and toured the world as the top performing rock band you know in the world for for like a 7 year period and it only ended when on September 24th 1980 Bonham truly lost control of himself i mean went totally over the top and i should say that with great talent comes great license. One gets a great amount of freedom to act like a complete goofball. And I mean, what I'm about to relate is just totally, totally absurd, just ridiculous. So on his way uh, to, uh, uh, on his way to a Led Zeppelin rehearsal, Bonham asked a friend who was driving to stop for breakfast. Repeat, breakfast. And at this particular breakfast, Bonham proceeded to pound down 16 
vodka screwdrivers. I mean, are you kidding me? 16 shots of vodka at breakfast. And, and yeah, I guess you would think 16 vodka shots first thing in the morning might take the edge off for most people and, and, and get the job done. You should be a little relaxed, a little more relaxed after 16 screwdrivers. But no. So Bonham goes to the rehearsal, and throughout that long rehearsal, he continued to drink extremely heavily. And the, the rehearsal didn't end till late that night. And after midnight, a totally shit-faced Bonham was helped into bed and because people were nervous about his condition, they placed him so helpfully on his side in that bed, and Bonham was out. The next afternoon, Bonham was found dead, having choked to death on his own vomit. Not the first rock star to have done so. But in the inquest that followed, um, they found that in the 24 hours on earth previous to his death that John Bonham had consumed 40 shots of vodka. I repeat, 40 vodka shots. I mean, de definitely that will do one in. I don't care how much drinking you have done to prepare yourself for such a day. 40 shots of vodka is not humanly possible and the formal inquest finding, accidental death. Well, I guess so. Well, um, per uh, the Rolling Stone, uh, Bonham had recently, prior to those 40 shots that day, he had recently overcome heroin addiction and was relying on unspecified medication for anxiety and depression at the time of his death. So John Bonham, like Keith Moon, was ineligible for 27 club membership, not because of a lack of talent and not because he lacked the drive to do himself in, but he was 32 years old at the time of his sudden death. <sighs> Also ineligible for membership of the 27 Club, and again, not for lack of talent, nor for lack of doing terrible things to one's body, we can add the Rolling Stones' Ronnie Wood. Plenty talented, heroin, cocaine, booze, freebasing, nine or more stints in rehab, but not dead yet. Obviously, a very strong constitution. And he's long beyond admission to eligibility rules. He might even die a natural death. About Ronnie Woods, Keith Richards, the man, <laughs> Keith Richards, the man voted by his peers in the 1960s, the man most likely not to see age 30. And, and, and he still rocks on. And you think the United States of America has a strong constitution. Compared to Keith Richards, nada. 
All right, so we move on. Graham Parsons of the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Again, sufficiently talented, a musician whom influenced the blending of rock and roll and country music that fostered the growth of acts like the Eagles. And he died of a fitting cause, sufficient cause, a drug overdose, heroin. But Parson remains forever ineligible for membership in the 27 Club based on a technicality, an own goal, if you understand soccer. 27 Club membership demands a member be alive on planet Earth a minimum of 9,862 days, plus or minus six based on leap year sort of thing. But Graham Parsons roamed planet Earth for only 9,818 days. Though this means that while Parsons was alive for 0.995538430338674 of the days on planet Earth required for club membership, 27 club membership, he did not meet 100% of the requirement. He met only 99.5538% of the requirement for 27 club membership. And there is no mercy in this club. No fudging, no rounding, no self-esteem medals. Parson died 0.442% short of the required minimum time on planet Earth. Damn! And so, in the spirit of Don Henley, who, whom famously said about a song that had been brought to him and Glenn Fry by a fellow band member for consideration for inclusion on an upcoming Eagles album. They declined, Fry and Henley did. The song presented them as not up to band standards. So Graham Parsons' claim to 27 club membership is toast. Like hand grenades, close, but not good enough. And as, as an aside, speaking of toast, well, it sounds disrespectful, but in any event, a certain amount of weirdness surrounds Graham Parsons' death in 1973. Parsons died, as mentioned, from an overdose of drugs and alcohol, specifically heroin. But perhaps Parsons had, had sensed that he'd lost his grip, that his life was spinning out of control. For he had told his friend, his good friend and tour manager, Phil Kaufman, on a number of occasions that should he, Graham Parsons, um, die, he wanted his remains to be cremated with his ashes scattered at the Joshua tree. And under, under no condition was Kaufman to allow his body to be returned to his family in Louisiana. And, and Parsons ha, has, had described to Kaufman that he had had a very, a very terrible, difficult childhood. And he made Kaufman promise on numerous occasions that Kaufman should honor his wishes not to be returned to Louisiana and that his ashes be scattered in, in Joshua Tree National, National Park. Now, Kaufman made the promise 
and he told him he'd make sure it happened. And though I, I'm quite sure that, you know, Kaufman never thought he'd actually have to make good on the promise he'd made his buddy um, or have to make such arrangements. Well, after Parsons died and there was an inquest, Parsons' body was brought to LAX and ordered by the family to be shipped to the family in Louisiana. And while being prepared for shipment, I mean, Kaufman is, is going to be seen here as a, a, a true friend, even in death. And he lived up to his promise to Graham Parsons, his buddy. Kaufman and a friend went to LAX, and I mean, I don't even know how this is possible, but they snatched the body of Parson from LAX authorities at the, at the airport, and then driving like lunatics with Graham Parson's body in the vehicle, they made it to Joshua Tree National Park. And there, Kaufman proceeded in a hurried fashion, to empty a gas can into Parsons' casket, and then he tossed in a match. Boom! After the body had been consumed by fire, the loyal, <laughs> the loyal but crazy twosome then spread the singer's ashes as he had so desired into the park, and Parsons' last request had been honored. By the way, I'll just point out, Kaufman and his accomplice, as you might imagine, were soon arrested. This is not surprising, as one might imagine. But what is surprising is that at that time, in 1973, there existed no law. It had not been seen fit by authorities in L.A. or L.A. County or the state of California to have passed through the legislature a law against the stealing of bodies. You know, perhaps they weren't familiar with all that body snatching that took place in London for, for medical uh, examination and anatomy lessons. But in any event, there was no law. And... Ultimately, it was decided that Kaufman and Buddy need pay a fine of $750. They did so and boogied, and that was that. And so ends our brief discussion of famous rock stars whose talent was sufficient, whose craziness that led to death was sufficient, but whom failed to technically qualify for 20 seven club membership and we will discuss in the future some of those members of the famous 27 club hey thanks for listening i'm not sure you're enlightened but i hope you enjoyed have a good day bye-bye <laughs>
time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I belong Everything I'm also Just a drop of rain in a thunderstorm Another grain of sand on the beach A blade of grass on a mountain field Another call on a rush house Could I miss what was in front of me? Two eyes that can't make you see. It's the mind that paints all these pictures, like the mirage of the deserts. I misread all the signals. I never knew that I'd been lost. I thought those ways. Mistakes, just things that I've done I can tell that I've broken the heart Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling apart? I hope that she knows that I meant no harm My demons, they led me 